The locations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Kootenai, Okanagan, Sinixt, Shuswap, Blackfoot, and Coeur d'Alene peoples. civil engineer who enjoyed a challenge, the 1920s were a great time to be alive and the northern Rocky Mountains were the place to be. For as long as people have been building roads, we've mostly designed them to cross mountain ranges at the lowest possible point. But in the early 20th century, car travel was becoming more common, and the U.S. and Canada started building some highways with scenery, rather than practicality, in mind. During the 20s, both countries' national park systems were hard at work on byways winding their way to some of the Rockies' highest points. The Meadows in the Sky Parkway in BC's Mount Revelstoke National Park, and Going to the Sun Road in Montana's Glacier National Park. The stunning landscape through which they travel, full of contorted layers of rocks, glacially carved cliffs, and abundant wildlife, are the reason for the roads, and for why they were so difficult to build. Designed to transport visitors vertically, hairpin turns and narrow defiles with sheer cliffs on either side can make driving a white-knuckle experience even in the middle of summer. And for much of the rest of the year, the roads close entirely. A winter brutal enough to shut down two of the world's most impressively engineered highways also presents a huge challenge to any organism living there. Even in the summer, as you ascend both Mount Revelstoke and Glacier, Watch the trees along the road for evidence of just how nasty the weather here can get. As you head uphill, the dense forests of the lower elevations start growing sparser, replaced by isolated standing trees. Higher still, even species of tree that grow tall further down slope can grow only as ground-hugging shrubs known as krumholtz. And finally, on the very tallest peaks, trees of any description disappear altogether. Many small plants that survive at high altitudes shed their leaves in the fall and wait out the winter, but some conifers have evolved ways of coping with the extreme climate of the high Rockies. From the bitter roots of Montana and Idaho to Mount Robson in BC, an area known as the Northern Central Rockies to ecologists, Engelmann spruce and subalpine firs have evolved to survive the rigors of a mountain winter. Of these species, the fir is especially common, easy to identify, and well-situated to its environment. To understand why, we first need to understand what makes a Rocky Mountain winter so perilous, and how it can shut down the normal functioning of plants. One of the major threats to alpine plants is snowfall. The Blue Mountains we visited in the previous episode may wring a fair amount of water from passing weather systems, but the towering Rockies are even bigger natural barriers that force precipitation out of the air. In the cold of the winter, this precipitation falls as snow, blanketing the ground to a depth of more than a dozen feet. This is a problem for any evergreen plant, because plants rely on sunlight to carry out photosynthesis. Solar energy is key to this process, which allows plants to cobble together sugars, essential energy storage molecules, from water and carbon dioxide gas. A plant that sheds its leaves can shut down in the winter, halting photosynthesis and relying on stored sugars for its few needs. Evergreen firs have no such luxury, 
retaining their needles and needing to carry out photosynthesis even when covered in a thick layer of snow. Snow presents a structural problem as well. It's heavy, and as anyone who's experienced an early season snowfall knows, even a small coating can be enough to break the limbs off of trees that have not yet shed their leaves. As if snow weren't bad enough, subalpine firs also have to deal with the other major threat to mountain plants, cold. The thin air and exposed environment of the high Rockies mean that heat dissipates quickly and that winds can be brutal, chilling the air even further. Plants may not need the same high body temperatures to function that we do, but freezing presents a major threat to most species. This is because of how water moves through a plant. Most plants have complex systems of vascular tissue, tube-like cells that transport water and the crucial dissolved nutrients and sugars it carries. This may sound superficially like our circulatory system, but unlike us, a tree doesn't have a heart to pump blood where it needs to go. And for the most part, water can move in only one direction, from roots to leaves. When water evaporates its stomata, the holes on leaves that allow water out and carbon dioxide in, the tendency of water molecules to stick to one another means that the evaporating water effectively pulls on other water molecules further down the tree. In the right conditions, this is enough to draw water into leaves, through vascular tissue, and up the root system. All it takes, though, is just one break in the chain, and the whole system falls apart. Ice crystals can cause just such a disruption, so any plants whose vascular tissues freeze are in serious danger. Many plants, including most conifers, simply can't survive in the cold, snowy heights of the Rockies. So how does subalpine fir do it? One of subalpine fir's most important adaptations to life in a snowy environment is the trait that makes it easy to identify. Especially this time of year, we tend to think of conifers as basically green cones, the classic Christmas tree shape. Subalpine fir, on the other hand, has short branches both at the top and base of the tree, making it more column-shaped than conical. This means that it's harder for snow to build up on its limbs, reducing the danger of breaking and keeping needles clear for photosynthesis. One of the best places to go to see just how effective this shape can be is BC's Kootenai National Park, which remains accessible year-round thanks to the presence of a major highway, allowing you to experience Rocky Mountain forests in the winter without undertaking a life-threatening alpine trek. What you'll see less of in the relatively low-lying landscape of Kootenai is what happens to subalpine firs above the tree line, where an upright tree would be exposed to damaging cold and wind. In these areas, the tree grows as ground-hugging krumholtz, for which snow is a protective blanket, not a danger. The dark needles of subalpine fir are hugely important to these trees, allowing them to gather sunlight more efficiently and photosynthesize through the snow. Young plants, however, would be too small to do so, so subalpine fir has evolved an unusual method of reproducing. While the species still produces cones and seeds, low-lying branches can sprout new root systems and begin to grow as new trees, a process known as layering. The big advantage to layering is that young trees begin connected to their parents, providing them access to sugars and nutrients until they are old enough, and the weather is mild enough, to grow independently. Most firs further down the mountain breed the usual way, by sprouting from seeds, but these seeds will remain dormant until any snow on the ground has begun melting, 
ensuring that they'll have a full growing season in which to mature and prepare for their first winter. These are some of the ways in which subalpine firs have evolved to deal with the snowy environment of the high Rockies. But what about cold? Adaptations to the cold are harder to observe firsthand, instead happening internally and at the level of cells. Conifers, especially those living in frigid environments, are remarkable for having huge amounts of dissolved sugar in their vascular tissue. Something you've had to experience if you've ever tried to get sticky pine sap off of your clothes or out of your hair. This sugary mixture draws water out of cells and shunts it to areas where it can freeze without damaging the plant. There are two big side effects of this process, one beneficial, the other very much not. The good news is that this process lowers the freezing point for the plant's cells, making it harder for ice crystals to form in the first place. The bad news is that it leads to a lot of water loss. Fortunately, as we've seen in earlier episodes, conifers are water-saving specialists. The thin needles of conifers, the small number of stomata through which water can be lost, and the thick, waxy layer known as a cuticle are characteristic of all conifers, all of which minimize water loss, and all of which are accentuated in subalpine fir. Well below the tree line, where precipitation is common and falls as rain, not snow, conserving water becomes much less of an issue. At medium altitudes, the forests of the Rockies look a lot like those you might see on the coast or in the western Cascades, full of water-loving species like hemlock, cedar, and yew. Head a little further downhill, though, where things dry out again, and a very different environmental hazard becomes a problem for plants. Confusingly, British Columbia also has a Glacier National Park, and it was here, in the dry, windy summer of 2017, that I came as close as I ever hoped to come to a major forest fire. I was in no real danger, safely seated inside a car on a major highway and surrounded by the wet forests along the Beaver River. Helicopters carrying buckets passed back and forth overhead, shuttling water from the river to the fire in what seemed like a losing battle to contain it. I've heard first-hand accounts that describe forest fires almost as living things, moving unpredictably, waxing and waning as they're fanned by wind and as they ignite new caches of fuel. I was, fortunately, too far away to see this particular aspect of the glacier fire for myself, but not too far away to get a sense of the huge scale of the fire, both visually and through the intense smell unique to forest fires. This smell, and the smoke generated by large flare-ups, are familiar to anyone who lives in the inland northwest, combining to form a thick, hazardous haze that can settle over the area in the late summer and that is almost always described as apocalyptic. The same word is often used to describe the landscape after a fire has subsided. If you were to walk through the same forest in Glacier National Park today, it would probably strike you as an alien world, the ground covered in a thick layer of ash, the vegetation stripped from, and the bark blackened on, the trees remaining upright. The history of forest management in North America is full of such descriptions, all emphasizing how otherworldly and unnatural a forest fire and its effects are. But at least in the lower slopes of the Rockies, we shouldn't think of them in such terms. Intentional burning by indigenous peoples dates back millennia in the region, 
and before any member of our species set foot on the continent. Lightning strikes and dry summers combine to make fires a fact of life for many forests. Most plants evolve to deal with this pressure by bouncing back quickly from disaster, but many conifers have taken a different evolutionary pathway, becoming resistant to, and in some cases entirely dependent on, fire. Not all conifers are well adapted for coping with blazes. Trees that specialize in dense, damp forests don't encounter forest fires often, and if they do, it tends not to end well for them. For conifers that live in sunnier, drier woodlands, though, fire has been a major evolutionary pressure, and several species have responded accordingly. As should come as no surprise, the sun-loving Douglas fir is common in areas that are prone to burning, and it's a textbook example of a fire-resistant tree. Douglas firs have amazingly thick bark, and this simple shielding is sufficient for protecting the delicate vascular tissue of the plant from all but the most severe fires. Indeed, most old Douglas firs in this part of the world sport burn marks from blazes earlier in their lives. Distributing branches and needles high up on a tree is another way of avoiding fire damage. With little vegetation near the ground, fires sweeping across the forest floor have no way of reaching the all-important needles and, for the most part, pass harmlessly by. Many Rocky Mountain species have independently evolved this growth pattern, but by far the most familiar is the ponderosa pine. Some conifers have more quirky ways of dealing with fire. The western larch, often referred to locally as the tamarack, is one of the few conifers that sheds its needles in the fall. They regrow in the spring, but are still young and full of moisture when fire season begins, making it harder for them to burn. No local species, though, has quite the same relationship with fire as the lodgepole pine. Over much of their range, these pines grow in a similar way to any other conifer. In fire-prone environments, though, they've evolved to not just tolerate periodic burning, but to depend on it. Like Douglas firs, lodgepole pines are early successional trees that thrive in sunny areas, such as the charred but wide-open and nutrient-rich clearings left behind by large blazes. The cones of lodgepole pines ensure that they'll be the first to take root in these environments by not opening until they've been exposed to extremely high temperatures. They may remain closed and dormant for long periods of time until a fire passes through and clears out most of their potential competitors. Given time, the clusters of lodgepoles that spring up after a fire will create a dense canopy of needles that will allow other, shade-tolerant species to survive, replaying on a smaller scale and with a slightly different cast of characters the same process of succession that is currently taking place on the slopes of Mount St. Helens. Most conifers don't benefit quite so directly from forest fires, but they do benefit in other, indirect ways. Fires provide clearings in which species requiring sun can thrive. They can clear out unhealthy trees, potentially stopping a disease or infestation of insects in its tracks. Perhaps most importantly, small fires clear out much of the underbrush on the forest floor, keeping fuel from building up and truly huge fires from starting. Paradoxically, this means that many of the well-intentioned efforts to prevent forest fires during the late 19th and much of the 20th century may have, in the long run, been the indirect cause of some truly massive burns. The most notorious of these took place in the Northern Rockies in 1910, and the mining town of Wallace, Idaho was at its heart. 
Much has been written about the causes of the Big Burn and its impact not just on local communities, but on how we think about fires, forests, and how, or if, we should manage them. The most harrowing story involves the Forest Service Ranger Ed Pulaski, who saved nearly his entire crew of firefighters by taking refuge in an abandoned mine above Wallace. Today, the mine is a short hike from town, and the forests you'll pass through on your way are a testament to the ability of local vegetation to bounce back. The entire area was engulfed in flames just over a century ago. Not that long ago when you measure time in tree lifespans. But already the canopy is thick, diversity is high, and species that could not survive without the shade provided by pioneering pines and Douglas firs are plentiful. Wallace, like many other towns in the region, grew up in part because of the economic value of trees like these. But in the darker, wetter parts of the forests above town, you'll find a species that has a much deeper significance to the people of the Northwest. It grows in clusters throughout the forests of the Northern Rockies, but it's further west that the true importance of this tree becomes clear. Next week, we'll head as far west as you can go in this part of the world, to the fringes of the Olympic Peninsula and Vancouver Island, to get to know western red cedar and the stunningly complex culture it literally and figuratively supports. <laughs>